it's like sand going through your fingers. You know, the genie's out of the bottle. You're not going to get it back in. So how do you ensure that you're putting some safety and guardrails on here and raise the awareness without getting so heavy-handed and draconian in the reaction? This notion of curated data. There was a Gordon Bell Prize awarded to users on the Frontier supercomputer. They stored all the scholarly medical journal information in the U.S. dating back to 1812, and that was the source of a large language model. So I'm training it on a broader data set, but then applying it to a much more finite data set in practice. Do I really need AI? Or am I just surfing the database and I'm doing some correlation analysis? And what about it is it that it's AI? It's like a knowledge base. That's something that is going to require kind of a United Nations of sorts of different organizations and stakeholders to come together. But to get from here to there, it's going to be new. From Orion X in association with Inside HPC, this is the At HPC podcast. Join Shaheen Khan and Doug Black as they discuss supercomputing technologies and the applications, markets, and policies that shape them. Thank you for being with us. Hey, Shaheen, it's great to be with you again, as always. Great to be here. Sounds like AI is the topic. AI is the topic du jour, du le monde. You might, you know, it's, <laughs> it's so hot right now, and we really did want to get into large language models, generative AI. And last week, there was a very interesting article in the journal about generative AI and data sources. And this got us on to our guest. His name is Tim Crawford. He's CIO Strategic Advisor at LA-based IT advisory firm Avoa. Tim, welcome. Thanks for having me, guys. It's great to take part in the discussion today. Yeah. And Tim was quoted in an article about data sources for generative AI. And so we have ChatGPT, which apparently is basically scraping the entire internet for its data over against what Tim was talking about, which custom data sources. Tim, tell us a little bit about that, just to kick off our discussion about the difference in those two approaches, maybe some of the potential downsides of the chat GPT approach. Yeah, you know, people are talking a lot about chat GPT and, and generative AI more broadly. But when you look at chat GPT, the sources come from the internet, as you mentioned. You don't necessarily know what the sources are for folks that maybe haven't used it. You ask it a question, ask it to respond to that question, and it scours the internet and forms an answer to that, whether it's a couple of lines or a document, depending on what you're asking for, it'll do that. The problem is if there's an inaccuracy in that, you don't necessarily know what the source was for that inaccuracy. So this becomes part of a problem because depending on how you're using that output, if you're using it for something very meaningful or for public consumption, you might be basing that off of bad information. And so without understanding the lineage and provenance of data sources that contribute to that output, it's pretty hard to then go back and say, okay, how do I know this is really the truth? Now, we're seeing this in a broader context on social media, right? There's misinformation, disinformation, and accurate information. The same thing is going to play true as we go down the pike with ChatGPT. And I think that's something we just have to be very cognizant of, is understanding that because we don't know the sources, how can we ensure that the output is accurate? And I think as we get into more sensitive areas, this is going to become a bigger issue, especially when you talk about things like 
code creation. You talk about how that plays into the public domain and intellectual property rights and plagiarism and the rest. So there's a lot at stake here and there's a lot we still have to work out. Yeah. And I think you've also mentioned that you can have a snowball effect where bad data leads to bad content, but that also is spread out on the internet and it's picked up by subsequent uses of large language models. Yeah, that's exactly right. The output of ChatGPT becomes the source of the next question, assuming they're relevant. But you end up with this kind of snowball effect, as you said, where let's say there's a piece of bad information that fits into an output. So it's a source, becomes an output. Well, that output now is the source for someone else's question or your own next question. And so that then starts to promulgate out more broadly than it otherwise would. And so I think this, without knowing the provenance of data, it's hard to go back and say, okay, that's bad data. Let's go back and correct that. And let's correct the different instances of it so we don't continue to propagate this bad data more widely. When you say snowball effect, you mean the feedback where the AI learns from its own previous output. That's correct. Right. So now if you have an original wrong information, it just gets propagated down. That's yeah, that's yeah. a big problem, isn't it? This is like when you have malware on your archives of your data and when you back up and restore, you restore the bad stuff again. Right. But it's not knowing that it's malware necessarily. You don't have a clean, clear way to understand what that source is. In a related theme, I was with a group of venture capital firms and CIOs, I guess it was a couple months ago now. And we were talking about generative AI and chat GPT, and this is before version four came out. But what was interesting was one of the partners made a comment that I thought was very apropos, which is, you know, the output is really interesting and you can do some interesting things with chat GPT, but every once in a while it drops acid and you have to understand (laughs) and be aware when it does. So you can stop and go back and do it again and make sure that you don't have the same kind of output. And I think this is one of the challenges that I see coming up today. I'm already seeing companies that are doing this, which is they're just blindly using these tools without thinking about the ramifications of them. And I call it running with scissors. (laughs) You know, it's just like a a child running with scissors. They're okay until they fall and really hurt themselves. And I think that's one of the challenges that we have right now is We might be going a little too far too fast without maybe just taking a breath in between these iterations. So let me raise a counterpoint here, is that there are several use cases where accuracy really isn't that big a deal. Yep. Being close enough is close enough. Certainly in the marketing world, using ChatGPT to crank out blogs is something everybody's doing, at least the first couple of drafts of it. Your audience is not a human being anyway. It's a search engine. So it's all about keywords and links and the volume of content. Mm -hmm. And you could argue that on the flip side, because the search engine is the audience, human beings really aren't reading it anyway. It's another bot reading it. So bots talking to bots. So now the danger becomes a lot more indirect. So for some use cases, there really is no danger. I guess there's a non-zero possibility. But in some other cases it becomes like a digital soup where all these bots are talking to each other and humans, you know, only have a finger in or a toe in. Well, but maybe we can pick that apart a little bit. Yeah. I agree with you that there are somewhat mundane purposes where a tool like ChatGPT makes a lot of sense. For example, if you're trying to create boilerplate language to start a contract, 
let's say you're going to write a privacy policy. That's a great use case for it because you're not going to take the output. Let me rephrase that. You should not take the output and just mm-hmm. plaster it on your website and call it a day. You should read through it, make sure that it is accurate to your needs and you agree with it and then go forward with it. But the point is you're not starting with a blank sheet of paper. And the same is true with boilerplate components of a contract, right? There, mm-hmm. there are some pretty standard language items that are in most contracts. And so there might be some tweaks here or there. And then there are some very specific aspects that you add in. Those are really great and low risk use cases for a tool like ChatGPT. Those more mundane aspects. But the piece that I also want to exemplify here is I'm not taking the output of ChatGPT and just leveraging it directly but I have a human validating it. Mm -hmm. And I have friends that are doing this today with blog posts where they're using ChatGPT to come up with ideas, but then they're rewriting it in their own voice. And I think this is something that's really important is for a writer, it's incredibly important to ensure that it's in your own voice. Now, when you get to more pedestrian, large publications, that's a different story. But I think, you know, when you look at some of these independent blogs and blog posts, people, real humans do read those. Yes, search engines read them too, but that's really just to bring other humans to read those posts. It's not to necessarily synthesize it and leverage it automatically, at least not yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then on the other hand, Tim, we have this notion of curated data. So I first came across this in November at SC, there was a Gordon Bell Prize awarded to users on the Frontier supercomputer, which is now the world's most powerful HPC system. Basically, I believe what they did was they stored all the scholarly medical journal information in the US dating back to 1812. And that was the source of a large language model application. So to your point, when you were quoted in the journal, trusted sources for customized purposes That's a really powerful idea. You're absolutely right. And when you get into the specifics of that, what I'm seeing enterprises try to do is rather than leverage what's out in the public domain for internal business purposes, which then could lead to bad decisions or inaccurate strategies and directions, which then can have negative financial ramifications. What they're looking at is to say, look, I need to know what the provenance of that data is. And if I can't do that to the public domain, like you can with a search engine, like a search engine, if you go to Google or Bing and you say, I'm looking for generative AI, and it shows a list of entries, you can see exactly what the source of that data is. You can't do that with ChatGPT. And so what they're doing is kind of a stopgap to this is to say, how do I constrain this model to just my internal data, which let's be honest, some of that internal enterprise data could be flawed too, but the risk is relatively low to the public domain and the potential of bringing something outside in. Now that's within an enterprise and that's something we're already seeing happen today. Just to add on to that, when you talk about specialized data, so your example of medical data that might be in a specific industry or a specific domain, you also are constraining the potential for, you know, a Tim Crawford coming out and let's talk about nuclear physics and I can, you know, opine about nuclear physics until the cows come home. 
Does that mean that I have expertise or background in it? No, it doesn't. I just have an opinion. And as I've long since said, opinion does not replace experience. And so what you're talking about doing is essentially constraining the model to that data that is based on experience, which again, statistically speaking, will reduce the risk of uninformed data coming in. Yeah, I have a couple of comments on this. One is that, is there enough data internally to actually train these models? Because one of the learnings of AI is that it takes a lot more data than you thought, and it takes a lot more hardware than you thought. If the entry price is 10,000, 40,000 GPUs, that is not for everybody suddenly. So how do you... Now, I understand that you want to take these models to the enterprise and you want to teach the vocabulary of the enterprise to the model. You want the model to learn about your products and your processes and all that and to customize it for you. Or maybe you have governance issues and you don't want to put it in, you know, out there. You want to bring it on-prem. All of those, I think, are very valid, but don't all of those rely on a model that's already trained with all that potentially junk data out there? Potentially. Yeah, absolutely. But what I am seeing as well is tools that might train the model based on specific types of data. So go back to the example of specific medical data. So again, you're limiting the exposure of extraneous information coming into it, but then using that model for my internal data. So I'm training it on a broader data set, but then applying it to a much more finite data set in practice. Uh So again, you're kind of, you're getting that percentage of a percentage of a percentage of risk. I don't see a situation today where there's a 0% risk unless you have so much data that you can do an effective job of training the model yourself with just internal data, which can be done. I mean, companies have been doing that for some period of time before generative AI. But at the same time, the whole thing with generative AI is it's the analytics and the model, taking your language model and being able to feed the output back in as a new source, Mm. right? Mm. It's that feedback loop. And that's the piece that you have to be careful about is how that output gets used for the next thing the next question, the next output. And can you flag that as wrong data, don't ever use this again, and then it goes back and does that? Well, I think when you have more control over the model itself and how that feedback loop gets managed, yes. It When we're talking about chat GPT, no. Right. Absolutely not. Right. And I think that's part of the problem is getting back to your point, which is incredibly valid, which is, do you have enough data for a specific question to be asked? And for a lot of enterprises, I think they have enough to ask a decent question. Do they have enough to get the level of depth that they might get in a much more broad model or broad data set? No. You know, if you go back to the medical example, if I'm doing cancer research, I might have 10,000 patients within my population that I'm doing DNA analysis on. Mm-hmm and testing on. And so I have a population of 10,000 data points to use and probably some subset of those because some will slide out for different reasons. Now that compares and pales in comparison to, let me take my data set at my research institution and add it to five other research institutions that Mm -hmm. might have another 10,000. So now I've got a total of 60,000 patients in my population. That's a huge increase 
right? It's a, it adds a lot more accuracy to the data. Does that mean that my 10,000 is not relevant? No, but it just goes to show the, the bigger the model, the more accurate the data could be. And I say could be because you're also introducing additional risk when you go outside of the bounds today. But you know, when you talk about that few number of cases, do I really need AI? Or am I just surfing the database and I'm doing some correlation analysis? (laughs) And what about it? Is it that it's AI? It's like a knowledge base and let you surf the database. Why is that? And that's, you know, this is, this is, I think, one of the big marketing things today with AI. Everything has AI, right? Right. My eyeglasses have AI. Okay. You know, okay. The water bottle has AI. <laughs> it is, right? you know. That's the problem that we have now is when you get down to it, much of what we're talking about as, and you can't see my air quotes, but my air quotes around AI mm-hmm. is not artificial intelligence. It's machine learning. It's advanced analytics. But it doesn't have that more cognitive kind of bent to it that really gets you into that realm of true AI. It's just a nice little moniker, and it sounds more interesting than machine learning or advanced analytics or something else. Machine intelligence, yeah. Machine intelligence, right. Right. But in talking about these different approaches to using large language models, really we're talking about self-regulating or risk aversion done on your own behalf. But we're also starting to see bigger and bigger discussions about regulating AI and problems of the increasing power of these tools and what do we do about them and putting up guardrails to limit their potential damage. You know, This is looking out years, years ahead. Last night on 60 Minutes, there was an interview with the Google CEO, Sundar Pichai, that I thought he had a very interesting quote. He said, the pace at which we can think and adapt as societal institutions to AI compared to the pace at which the technology's evolving is a mismatch. You know, I think we're all very aware of that, that the people driving this technology are super talented, super knowledgeable, and the people who might regulate it aren't as well informed, aren't as technically adept. And I think his his word mismatch is very well chosen. Well, it's a bit of a Jurassic Park scene when the guy says, we don't understand the implications of what we're doing. Yeah. And, you know, I always thought that there's a characteristic frequency to things, you know, subatomic, it's picoseconds, femtoseconds, geological is like billions of years, and human beings is like several generations. And that is a problem. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I could see someone listening to this right now and going, okay, what's a picosecond? <laughs> but I completely agree. I mean, in some ways, regulation is scary when it comes to technology and innovation. And I've written a bit about this from the standpoint of breaking up some of these tech companies from a monopoly standpoint and what the ramifications that could be. And the same thing is true when you talk about some of these advanced technologies and putting regulatory constraints around them as the quote unquote guardrails. These folks are not well-versed with technology, especially advanced technology like generative AI. And we see that every day. I mean, you just have to look at some of the most recent Senate interviews, like look at the TikTok. uh, The hearing. Right? You know, when he was on the stand and being interviewed, one of the Congress people was asking him, so about this TikTok app, You know, if I bring it up on my phone at home, on my home network, 
does it have access to my network? (laughs) And you're sitting there listening to this. And for anyone that has a little bit of expertise in technology, you're, you're kind of thinking, okay, what exactly is he asking? I think what he means to ask is, does the app that rides across my home network to get out to the internet and get to TikTok's infrastructure, does that then have access to other devices on my network? I think that's what he was trying to ask. Or my data, yeah. Right. But the point here is here's a relatively simple example of where it gets screwed up. And we saw this with the social media interviews too, right? You know, asking Zuckerberg. Yeah, yeah. How do you make money? And others. I mean, it's (laughs) kind of ludicrous. So my point to this is that I do think that we do need guardrails. I'm hesitant that legislators should be the ones to put them in place because of their past history, because of that inequality that exists, right? We see this just within the microcosm of an enterprise. You see this between IT leaders and their board between IT leaders and those outside of IT. You see these inequalities of understanding the depth and technology and ramifications that come with it. We could talk about cybersecurity. It's another great example in the same space. Hmm. But when you talk about AI and some of the risks from data and how that kind of plays out, I sure as heck hope that legislators don't get their fingers into trying to regulate this directly, but rather become kind of a body that helps move the industry forward without having to come down with the the heavy hand of thou shall do this or do that. And this gets into, you know, you could talk about how some companies are trying to block generative AI from their network, or some countries are now looking at how yeah. do we block access from our country at a country level. And Italy did that, right? Yeah. I mean, states, look at, I think it was Montana that just announced that they're going to block TikTok at a state level. I mean, this is just a mess because it's like sand going through your fingers. You know, the genie's out of the bottle. You're not going to get it back in. So how do you ensure that you're putting some safety and guardrails on here and raise the awareness without getting so heavy handed and draconian in the reaction? And that's the problem. You know, while I agree with you, and maybe what I'm about to say was just a stunt, but the calls to have a moratorium came from inside tech. What was that all about? Yeah, I th- so I think there's a little bit more here that we haven't seen. Some of it, I think, is coming from organizations that may feel like they're a little behind the curve and aren't mm-hmm. ready. And so they're trying to use it as a way to catch up. But let's let's be honest. I mean, I was sitting at a table, not this past week, but the week before, sitting with a table of CIOs and CISOs for dinner. And we were talking about generative AI. And I started to drop out some ideas of how you could use this for nefarious purposes. And (laughs) all of a sudden, our conversation went incredibly dark, incredibly fast. And so then you think about the moratorium, you know, fine. So what? You put the moratorium in place. Guess what? The bad guys aren't going to adhere to that. They're going to use that as an advantage to get that much further ahead of the good guys. Yep. So I do think that trying to put these moratoriums or or locks in place, I think that's a fool's errand. I don't think that that's going to do anything other than just make things worse on the, the macro level. I think what we need to do is put our effort toward figuring out How can we ensure that we have guardrails around understanding provenance of data, understanding how we get here, until we can get to a point where we trust 
how those models are using data. Do you have ideas you could share with us on how we would put those guardrails in place? There was an interesting profile recently in the journal of Sam Altman, the mm-hmm. CEO of OpenAI, and he kind of exemplifies this extreme ambivalence you see among AI people toward this technology. They're deeply worried about some of the negative potentialities while also avidly pursuing it. You know, In fact, the letter we were talking about, that was in late March. One of the signers is Elon Musk, and Twitter is pursuing AI aggressively you know, to address some of that company's problems. Altman talked about setting up a global structure, governance structure, but who would be on that? Who would pick the people who are part of that? And how would their policies and recommendations be implemented? It's also kind of vague and amorphous. It is. And I think this is another great example of how we don't do a good job of crowdsourcing mm-hmm. regulation and guidance. I mean, we used to do that fairly well, but we've lost that in the last couple of decades, unfortunately. And now we're to the point that public opinion kind of plays a, a leading role in this play that we're living in. I do think that you have to look at all of the different stakeholders that are involved large enterprise, the venture capital and startup world. You have to look at the customers, you know, across the different spectrums. You have to look at government organizations, social organizations, you know, a good healthy cross-section of the core stakeholders that would be impacted both positively and negatively by this new technology and bring them together and just start down the process and start the hard work because it will be hard work but start the hard work to say, okay, how do we do this in a meaningful way? What are some of those risks? How do we address those? Let's agree to this. You're getting the the Microsofts and OpenAIs, and now we have Google involved with BARD. We've got Amazon that just announced last week or the week before that they're into the game and we can expect others too. But get some of these core folks involved to say, hey, we want to make this beneficial for everybody, but at the same time, we got to be really careful or this could be detrimental to everybody. And so how do we go about that? And I don't think that's a heavy-handed legislative output. I think that's something that is going to require kind of a United Nations of sorts of different organizations and stakeholders to come together. And, you know, maybe it is led by nation states, leading nation states, but to get from here to there, it's going to be new. It's going to be something that we haven't necessarily done. Maybe globalization is unavoidable after all. (laughs) Well, you know, (laughs) there's there's probably a whole nother episode we can do around (laughs) the impacts of globalization and nationalization on tech innovation. (laughs) Right on, right on. (laughs) Yes, we do need several more hours. (laughs) Okay. Well, Tim, great thoughts. Really good conversation and a pleasure having you on. We've been with Tim Crawford. He is CIO Strategic Advisor at LA-based IT advisory firm, Avoa. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me, guys. It's been a great conversation and an honor to take part in it. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you, Tim. Take care. That's it for this episode of the At HPC podcast. Every episode is featured on InsideHPC.com and posted on OrionX.net. Use the comment section or tweet us with any questions or to propose topics of discussion. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. 
the At HPC podcast is a production of Orion X in association with Inside HPC. Thank you for listening.